This is day three of our daily Bible reading. We will be reading Genesis chapters 9 through 12, and then Psalm chapter 3. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for refreshing us this morning, giving us a renewed desire to study your word and bringing us here together. Lord, help us in this time. We are so weak and we're so needy, Lord, so distracted in this current world. Help us to focus on you above all things and give us your wisdom. Give us the peace of God that is beyond all understanding and allow your grace to penetrate our lives so that we would be pleasing in your sight. Please bless the reading of your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the terror of you will be on every beast of the earth and on every bird of the sky, with everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are given. Every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. I give all to you as I gave the green plant. Only you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Surely I will require your lifeblood. From every beast I will require it. And from every man, from every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. As for you, be fruitful and multiply. Populate the earth abundantly and multiply in it. Then God spoke to Noah and to his sons with him, saying, Now behold, I myself do establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, and every beast of the earth with you, of all that comes out of the ark, even every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, and all flesh shall never again be cut off by the water of the flood. Neither shall there be again a flood to destroy the earth. God said, This is the sign of the covenant which I am making between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all successive generations. I set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be for a sign of a covenant between me and the earth. It shall come about, when I bring a cloud over the earth, that the bow will be seen in the cloud, and I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And never again shall the water become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the cloud, then I will look upon it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Now the sons of Noah, who came out of the ark, were Shem, and Ham, and Japheth. And Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the whole earth was populated. 
Then Noah began farming and planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and uncovered himself inside his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father, and he told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it upon both their shoulders and walked backwards and covered the nakedness of their father. And their faces were turned away so that they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine, he knew what his youngest son had done to him. So he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants he shall be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. Noah lived three hundred and fifty years after the flood. So all the days of Noah were nine hundred and fifty years, and he died. Now these are the records of the generations of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, the sons of Noah, and sons were born to them after the flood. The sons of Japheth were Gomer, and Magog, and Madai, and Javan, and Tubal, and Meshech, and Tiras. The sons of Gomer were Ashkenaz, and Raphath, and Togermah. The sons of Javan were Elisha, and Tarshish, Kittim, and Dodanim. From these, the coastlands of the nations were separated into their lands, each one according to his language, according to their families, into their nations. The sons of Ham were Cush, and Mizraim, and Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush were Seba, and Havilah, and Sabta, and Reama, and Sabtika. And the sons of Reama were Sheba, and Dedan. Now Cush became the father of Nimrod. He became a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, and Erech, and Akkad, and Kalneh, in the land of Shinar. From that land he went forth into Assyria, and built Nineveh, and Rehoboth-ir, and Kalah, and Resen, between Nineveh and Kalah, that is the great city. Mizraim became the father of Ludim, and Anamim, and Lahabim, and Naphutim, and Pathrusim, and Kasluhim, from which came the Philistines, and Kaphturim. Canaan became the father of Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, and the Jebusite, and the Amorite, and the Girgashite, and the Hivite, and the Archite, and the Sinite, and the Arvadite, and the Zemurite, and the Hamathite. And afterwards, the families of the Canaanite were spread abroad. The territory of the Canaanite extended from Sidon as you go toward Gerar, as far as Gaza, as you go toward Sodom, and Gomorrah, and Adma, and Zeboim, as far as Lasha. These are the sons of Ham, 
according to their families, according to their languages, by their lands, by their nations. Also to Shem, the father of all the children of Eber, and the older brother of Japheth, children were born. The sons of Shem were Elam, and Ashur, and Arphaxad, and Lud, and Aram. The sons of Aram were Uz, and Hul, and Gether, and Mash. Arphaxad became the father of Shelah, and Shelah became the father of Eber. Two sons were born to Eber. The name of the one was Peleg, for in his day the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. Joktan became the father of Almadad, and Shelef, and Hazarmeveth, and Jerah, and Haduram, and Uzal, and Dikla, and Obal, and Abimeel, and Sheba, and Ophir, and Havilah, and Jobab. All these were the sons of Joktan. Now their settlement extended from Misha as you go toward Zafar, the hill country of the east. These are the sons of Shem, according to their families, according to their languages, by their lands, according to their nations. These are the families of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies, by their nations, and out of these the nations were separated on the earth after the flood. Now, the whole earth used the same language and the same words. It came about, as they journeyed east, that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. They said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used brick for stone, and they used tar for mortar. They said, Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven, and let us make for ourselves a name. Otherwise, we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. The Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have the same language. And this is what they began to do, and now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down, and there confuse their language, so that they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there, over the face of the whole earth, and they stopped building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth. And from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. These are the records of the generations of Shem. Shem was 100 years old and became the father of Arpachshad two years after the flood. And Shem lived 500 years after he became the father of Arpachshad, and he had other sons and daughters. Arpachshad lived 35 years and became the father of Shelah. And Arpachshad lived 403 years after he became the father of Shelah, and he had other sons and daughters. Shelah lived 30 years and became the father of Eber. 
and Shelah lived 403 years after he became the father of Eber, and he had other sons and daughters. Eber lived 34 years and became the father of Peleg, and Eber lived 430 years after he became the father of Peleg, and he had other sons and daughters. Peleg lived 30 years and became the father of Ru, and Peleg lived 209 years after he became the father of Ru, and he had other sons and daughters. Ru lived 32 years and became the father of Sarug, and Ru lived 207 years after he became the father of Sarug, and he had other sons and daughters. Sarug lived 30 years and became the father of Nahor, and Sarug lived 200 years after he became the father of Nahor, and he had other sons and daughters. Nahor lived 29 years, and he became the father of Terah, and Nahor lived 119 years after he became the father of Terah, and he had other sons and daughters. Terah lived 70 years and became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Now these are the records of the generations of Terah. Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran became the father of Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his birth, in Ur of the Chaldeans. Abram and Nahor took wives for themselves. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram his son, and Lot the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went out together from Ur of the Chaldeans in order to enter the land of Canaan. And they went as far as Haran and settled there. The days of Terah were two hundred and five years, and Terah died in Haran. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So Abram went forth as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. Now Abram was seventy-five years old when he departed from Haran. Abram took Sarai his wife, and Lot his nephew, and all their possessions which they had accumulated, and the persons which they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan. Thus they came into the land of Canaan. Abram passed through the land as far as the site of Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. Now the Canaanite was then in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants 
I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. Then he proceeded from there to the mountain on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. Abram journeyed on, continuing toward the Negev. Now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. It came about when he came near to Egypt that he said to Sarai, his wife, See now, I know that you are a beautiful woman, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, This is his wife, and they will kill me, but they will let you live. Please say that you are my sister, so that it may go well with me because of you and that I may live on account of you. It came about when Abram came into Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. Pharaoh's officials saw her and praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. Therefore he treated Abram well for her sake, and gave him sheep and oxen and donkeys and male and female servants and female donkeys and camels. But the Lord struck Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. Then Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister, so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they escorted him away with his wife and all that belonged to him. Psalm chapter 3 A Psalm of David, when he fled from Absalom his son. O Lord, how my adversaries have increased! Many are rising up against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no deliverance for him in God. Selah. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory, and the one who lifts my head. I was crying to the Lord with my voice, and he answered me from his holy mountain. Selah. I lay down and slept. I awoke, for the Lord sustains me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me round about. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you have smitten all my enemies on the cheek. You have shattered the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be upon your people. Selah. Okay, another successful reading complete. Let's go through a brief commentary on what we read today. So we pick it up in chapter 9, right after the flood happens, and God is not only promising that he's never going to flood the earth again, but he also now allows human beings to eat meat. We see that in verse 3, where it says that every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. I give all to you as I gave the green plant. So before that, all of the world was vegetarian. 
Even animals that we consider to be carnivorous used to eat vegetables. Can you imagine a lion eating grass? Or can you imagine a wolf eating carrots? It just seems bizarre when you think about it. But that's how it was back then. But after the flood, not only did God change it to where animals were now going to be fearful of humans, but now they were considered targets for food. So that is something new that came after the flood. But then he also establishes a basic moral law. And it's basically a precursor to an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Where if somebody kills someone, that person deserves to die too. A life for a life. That's what we basically call capital punishment today. And capital punishment is very biblical. So I'm all for the death penalty when it's necessary. And then we see God's covenant that he makes with his people. Now, in a biblical context, a covenant is almost like a contract of sorts. God is going to be making a promise, and there's going to be something that both parties need to commit to. So in this particular case, God's promise is that he will never again flood the earth with water. He will never destroy all things with flooding ever again. And what he does is he puts the rainbow in the sky as a reminder of that promise. So I wonder how often we look at rainbows, if that applies to where you live, and consider this, that God once flooded the earth and he had promised never to do it again. And he constantly does that as a reminder. It's not like God himself needs to be reminded. He knows all things. But He does it for us to remember, because humans are such forgetful creatures. Now, after the flood, Noah went about his business, and he began planting vineyards. Now, this is the first mention of wine in the Bible, but this isn't saying that he invented wine. He may have, but it doesn't seem like that. However, it looks like he enjoyed his wine a little bit too much, and he became drunk, and He left himself exposed in his tent somehow. So when his son Ham walked in the door and saw his father's nakedness, it says in the literal Hebrew that he gazed with satisfaction. Now to me, it's not clear as to what exactly that's supposed to infer, but regardless, that was very dishonorable for Ham to go and tell his brothers. The right thing to do is if he walked in on his dad like that, he should have just covered him up out of respect. But he didn't. Instead, he's like, hey, hey guys, look, dad's naked over there. But we see the other two brothers have a completely different reaction to what Ham is doing. They instead do the right thing. And they go and cover him, facing away from him so they don't have to see him exposed. And apparently, somehow, Noah is completely aware of who was doing what. And so when he awoke, he cursed Canaan. And I found that to be kind of odd at first. Because it wasn't Canaan, the son of Ham, that saw all this. It was Ham himself. And so what it seems like is, at the time, Canaan was the only son of Ham. However, it's completely possible that Canaan was also involved in some way. 
but it doesn't really mention that. So Ham was punished for dishonoring his father by having a son that would be a dishonor to him, and that's going to be Canaan. That's why it makes it very clear that this curse that God pronounces is on Canaan. It's not on all of Ham's kids, but it is on Canaan. And we see later that Canaan becomes the father of all the Canaanites, which are the inhabitants of the promised land when Moses and Joshua take Israel into the land during the Exodus. So through Moses and Joshua, this curse is going to come full circle. They are going to be removed from their land, and they are going to be cursed until they no longer exist. And today, there are no more Canaanites. They all have basically gone extinct. So God has fulfilled his curse through the biblical stories, as well as just through the passage of time. Therefore, I think it's safe to say that this curse no longer applies to anyone living today because all the Canaanites are defeated. But even after this event, um, and even after the flood happened, Noah still lived 350 more years. He still got to see a lot of what happened next, if you can imagine that. Now, we tend to, in the timeline, just leave it at that, where Noah is no longer in the picture but he's still around for 350 years. And so all these things that are going to be happening in the near future, he may have been around to see some of that. So that's very interesting to consider. But when we go into chapter 10, we see a genealogy of some of the families of Japheth, some of the families of Ham, and some of the lineage of Shem, specifically the genealogy leading up to Abram, or later he'll be called Abraham, because you could say that that was the chosen bloodline that was going to lead to the Messiah. Now, when we go through the rest of the Old Testament, some of these names will come back and seem familiar, because it seems like a lot of these people named a territory or a city after themselves. And so we will see some of these names pop up again, because they were originally founded by or attributed to this ancient ancestor. So that's very interesting to think about. Now from here, we see the sons of Japheth, and the way that it's described, they were the peoples that went towards Eurasia from the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea, and then all the way to Spain. So you could say that Europe is basically Japheth's ancestry. Not only that, but you see a few names here that are very prevalent in specific parts of the world. For example, you see the name of Gomer, which ends up being a part of eastern Turkey, and that will come up again in the book of Ezekiel. Magog is referenced in end times kind of stuff, and Magog is usually matched up with Russia. So somehow Russia may be involved with the end times. We don't know. And then you'll also see Tarshish. This one will come up a lot in the Old Testament as a place of trade. This is in the south of Spain. And perhaps the two most famous times we will see that is through Solomon as well as through Jonah. Then we go into Ham's descendants. 
and Ham's descendants basically inhabit Africa and portions of the Middle East, maybe even going off into Asia. Now, again, a lot of these names are going to show up again throughout the Old Testament, but there's a couple that I want to talk about in particular. One is Nimrod. Nimrod is going to be a reoccurring person that goes through a few different names throughout history. And quite frankly, his name still exists today in one form or another. Nimrod was a mighty hunter in his day, and he is credited here as being the one who started the Tower of Babel. So that's interesting to note, that he is the creator of the Tower of Babel, or at least the ruler of it. And it says that it was in the land of Shinar, which Shinar is another name for Babylon. So the Tower of Babel was indeed in the area of Babylon. So that's something interesting to note. Sometimes the land of Shinar is also called Chaldea. So when we go into Abram's story, it mentions that he is from Ur of the Chaldeans. He came from the area of Babylon. Now, there's a lot of extra-biblical stuff about Nimrod that I'm not going to get into too much, but there is something about him that we need to understand today. Nimrod is revered, even today, as a deity. He goes by the name of Baal. And even more so, he goes by a different name, Tammuz. So the story kind of goes like this. Nimrod had a wife, and she was pretty evil. And there was a time where Nimrod died. And I forget, honestly, how he died, whether it was through an accident uh, in hunting or otherwise. But there was a period of time where Nimrod died, and she became the new queen of Babylon or whatever land it was. And there was a time where she wanted to have her husband revered as a god. And so what she claimed was the son got her pregnant, and Nimrod was the son. So that created Nimrod as being a sun god. And when she gave birth to the child, she named the child Tammuz and claimed that it was a reincarnation of her husband. And then it gets into an incestuous relationship, and it's quite disgusting. So I'll stay away from that. But even today, you can find an image of what this woman, Semiramis, looks like with her son, Tammuz. And where do you think you could find that? At the Vatican. And they're going to say that it is an image of the mother Mary with the baby Jesus. But it is not. It is Semiramis with Tammuz, who is revered as the reincarnation of Nimrod, the sun god. So that is idolatry at its finest. That is paganism that had entered into Christianity. And that is basically what summarizes the Catholic faith. If you're interested in more about Roman Catholicism, I have a whole series about that that I did some time ago, which I definitely recommend looking at and studying. You will be very surprised by what you find, and all of it is biblical and factual. But anyway, moving on, we go to the Tower of Babel in chapter 11. Very famous story. This is not only the origin of all the different languages of the world, 
but it is also the origin of all the different races of the world. Think about it. There is a form of evolution that is a scientific fact, and it's commonly called microevolution. Basically, what this means is that over time, things will adapt to their environment. And you commonly see that not only in humanity, but you also see that through all the animal kingdom, even in plant life. So it's not so far-fetched to think that once all of these languages got confounded and people started wandering off in different directions, that their skin color, their bodies started to change over generations as a result of where they lived and what kind of climate they were in. So, for example, if you go down to Africa, where it was always very hot and very arid and dry, you didn't have to wear a whole lot of clothes or any at all. And so over time, your body would naturally start creating more melanin, the coloring in the skin, to protect you from the sun. Therefore, over generations, your skin would get darker and darker and darker. Contrast that with people who would live in cold environments. In colder places, you needed to bundle up. You needed to cover yourself. And by covering yourself to stay warm, you're not allowing the sun to interact with your skin. So over time, your skin would get whiter and whiter and whiter. And that's why we have all these different colors and shapes and sizes today, because of the Tower of Babel. The reason why God was offended with the Tower of Babel was not only their arrogance in thinking that they could build a tower up to heaven, that they were so great, but it was a direct violation of what God had commanded Shem, Ham, and Japheth to do. What did he say back here in chapter 9? There were two things that he said. He said, for one, be fruitful and multiply. And secondly, spread across the earth. So they're not spreading across the earth here. They're trying to all stay in one place. And God does not like that. So not only are they staying in one place, but also they are acting arrogantly. They are exalting themselves with pride in thinking they could achieve something like this. And so God decides to confuse their language. And it forces them to spread out. Going back just a little bit to the family of Shem, there are two names mentioned here that are interesting to talk about. One is Uz, which you're going to see in the book of Job, that Job lives in the land of Uz. Not quite sure where exactly that is, but that shows you how old the book of Job is, near the beginning of all this. You're talking about Abraham's time is when Job was written. But then the other name is Peleg. Now, in Peleg's day, it says that the earth was divided. Now, there's two theories about what this could mean. It could mean that it was Peleg's generation when the Tower of Babel happened, or it's talking about when the earth was physically dividing. Remember during the flood that the great depths opened and burst forth from under the ground. So it's not so far-fetched to think that at the beginning that we did have what was called Pangaea, where all the continents were one supercontinent. And then after the flood, when the depths burst forth, it was devastating. 
It was traumatic for the land. So it is completely plausible that that caused the separation of the continents. And over time, you have continental drift, so on and so forth. So that's up for interpretation, but it's still interesting nonetheless. So then we finish chapter 11 with genealogies that lead up to Abram. And this enters into what is called the Age of the Patriarchs. Now, if you go back to the genealogies at the beginning of what we read today, look at how old Shem was when he died and some of his descendants. It is completely possible that Shem was alive during all of those events with Babel and even to the point where Abram was alive. That's mind-blowing when you think about that Shem could have been still alive when Abram was around, or shortly before Abram was born. That's wild. And I love to dream about what that would have been like. But it's not in the Bible, so it's up for speculation. So we pick up in verse 28, where Abram is from Ur of the Chaldeans. It is basically the civilization center of Mesopotamia. And it is the most populated and literate area of that day when they made everything in these clay tablets, using cuneiform, and all that. And God chooses Abram for a special purpose. He calls Abram out of that land. Now again, there are usually dual meanings in the Bible, dual applications or even multiple applications to a particular text. But doesn't God do that with us too? He calls us out of the world to his promises, to show us his kingdom. Because now that we are Christians, we belong to the kingdom of God. That is our citizenship. And we see this call that Abram received in chapter 12. But the defining quality of Abram that is more thoroughly explained in the New Testament is the fact that Abram listened to God and he obeyed. He believed God at his word. And because of that, it says that it was credited to him as righteousness. And we're going to get to that next time. But what I really love about the Bible is that it gives you the truth. It gives you the reality of mankind. And what I also appreciate about the Bible is that it does not exclude the flaws of men. And looking at the flaws of these people, it's the same flaws that we still have today. Uncertainty, doubt, quarreling, you name it. It's all the same stuff. It is the basic human condition. And that's what the Bible is trying to show us, is that this is the condition of man, and this is why you need God. And we see Abram's first flaw here, when there was a famine in the land, and he went down to Egypt, which was very lush at the time, and was the most prosperous nation of that area. He was afraid that he was going to be killed, and his wife was going to be taken from him because she was beautiful. Now, at this point, she is 65 years old. You would think that she wouldn't be that attractive, but bear in mind that this was a different time period in how people aged. She ended up living to 127. It wouldn't be a stretch of the imagination to say that people aged slower back then. We saw that from Noah, 
going to this current generation that people lived a lot shorter lives after the flood. And I still say it's because of the canopy, but again, that's not in the Bible, that's speculation. But if she was that beautiful at 65, because in this time period, people lived probably about double of the length of time that we do today. So it's very possible that she did not look old yet. But either way, Abram was afraid, so he told Sarai, tell them that you're my sister and not my wife. This is kind of a half-truth, if we want to be honest, because the truth is that Sarai is Abram's half-sister. If we go back to what we read at the very end of chapter 11, it talks about how the family situation is. Sarai is Abram's half-sister, and so they are related in some way. And again, in this time period, it was not creepy, and it was not unacceptable, because the genetic line was pure, and the world was not very populous yet. But despite his deception, God had a plan for both of them, and he was going to preserve them both, despite their flaws. So God intervened by striking plagues. We don't see what kind of plagues, but they were great plagues. And while what they were was not stated, we would think that Abram did not deserve this mercy from God, but he did show him plenty of grace, because he knew what Abram was going to be later. And don't forget that about us today. God knows who you're going to be later in your life. And while you may not be at the level you need to be now, God will get you there. The New Testament says that what he has started in you, he will seek to completion. God is not done working with you, and he's not going to give up on you. He's not going to start investing in you and then figure out that you're a bad investment and then just discard you. That's not how he does things. And praise God for that, because I should have been discarded years ago. But nonetheless, Pharaoh escorted Abram and Sarai out of there and wanted nothing to do with them. When we go to the psalm, the psalm was very short. But this particular psalm is a lament. Just like we saw at the heading of it, it was during a time where David was fleeing from his son Absalom. So this is not a good moment in his life. This is a psalm asking for deliverance. He wanted protection in the face of this rebellion that was going on in his kingdom. And what I appreciate about this psalm is it is the proper structure for how we are to interact with God. We are to definitely bring our complaints to him. We are definitely supposed to ask for salvation and security. But we do not forget a very important aspect of our relationship with God. And that is what David does at the end of the psalm. He praises God for who he is. And he seeks further victory from God. He knows what God is capable of doing and what God has already done in his life. And regardless of the outcome, David knows who God is, and he praises him for it. He pleads to God with an attitude of thanksgiving. This is the proper posture that we should have with our God. So while not a lengthy psalm, it is 
an important lesson for us to never forget to offer praise and thanksgiving to our God, even in your hardest hours. That's not always easy to do, but that is a definite sign of maturity if you are able to do that. Our verse for today is going to be Psalm chapter 3, verse 8. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be upon your people. And that's all I have for today. Thank you for listening. I'm Ryan, and we'll see you next time. Take care, and God bless you.